uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Do you hear that? Why, it's the sound of freedom. That is the title of a movie that is doing uh, numbers at the box office, but you maybe haven't heard of it. Or if you have, it's probably because you are aware of several controversies about the film. Uh, this It's a story. The story that we are going to tell, tell today uh, has it all. Sex trafficking, uh, internet-born conspiracy theories, Glenn Beck, Afghanistan, and of course, Jesus. Here with us today to talk about it all is Motherboard Senior Staff Writer Anna Merlin. Anna, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm maybe not the most qualified person to talk about Jesus specifically <laughs> due to the obvious, but um, you know, I will do my best. Well, the his work. The, his work. The main character in The Sound of Freedom, uh, the the new hot movie in America is played by Jesus himself, is he not? Jim Caviezel, yes. The the actor who plays Tim Ballard in the new movie um, Sound of Freedom also previously played Jesus in Passion of the Christ. So the Sound of Freedom is about something that you've been reporting on for several years, mm-hmm. uh, Operation Underground Railroad. Um, can you tell us why, what, what is Operation Underground Railroad? What is this movie? What is going on? Why, why are people talking about this? Right. So my editor, Tim Marchman, and I, Tim Marchman, motherboard staffer, friend of the, friend of the pod, um, have been writing about Operation Underground Railroad since 2020. We've written a series of stories about um, essentially the ways that their heroic tales of raids and rescues uh, do not always line up with the sort of truth as we can understand it from documentary evidence, like court records, talking to people who were on some of these raids, um, you know, looking at their financials, speaking to people familiar with the organizations. We've done a bunch of work on this. Um, And the entire time we have been working on these stories, OUR has been talking about this film, Sound of Freedom, which they finished in 2018 and which they've been trying to release ever since. Um, Actually, technically, OUR is not trying to release it. This is not an OUR production. It was eventually released by... um, a studio called Angel Studios that's known for making kind of like faith-based films. Um, But I think it is safe to say that OUR has been pretty heavily involved in sort of trying to get the film out there. They're certainly very pleased with, um, you know, the way that it depicts Tim Ballard, the founder of the organization. And now finally, after a lengthy delay and being dropped, uh, they say, by more mainstream distributors, Angel not only got the movie out, but has it in mainstream secular theaters all over the country. And as you heard, they had a really big opening weekend. They out earned Indiana Jones in the first weekend. Since then, Indiana Jones has kind of pulled away, but um, you know, by all accounts have made somewhere North of 40 million, possibly even $50 million at the box office so far uh, in part because of a sort of creative way that they have been selling tickets. Um, but it really is, you know, like a bona fide success by anybody's standards. It's getting reviews in places like Variety and the New York Times, getting written up in the Wall Street Journal. You know, it's doing well. Let's uh, let's back up just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Can you give me the pitch in the background on OUR? Like, where did this come from? What exactly do they say they're doing? Mm-hmm. So OUR was founded by Tim Ballard, who claims that he is an ex-CIA and Homeland Security officer who was frustrated by uh, not being able to rescue children overseas when he worked for the U.S. government. And so he quit and founded OUR. 
Um, we know that he worked for HSI, which is a division of ICE, which is, you know, under Homeland Security. So that part is accurate. Um, we know that he worked at the CIA for about a year. Um, people familiar with how the CIA works have said that it looks like that was probably something along the lines of an internship. And the reason why I'm raising it that way is because we can't confirm that um, without Mr. Ballard uh, agreeing to release his employment records from that time, which he won't do or has not done yet in response to our inquiries. He might. Um, so we know that we know that he founded OUR um, and beginning in, I want to say 2013 or 2014, they started doing a couple things. One was going overseas and claiming to carry out um, what is called the raid and rescue model, which they did not invent. This has been a thing for a long time in some circles in anti-trafficking where you go into foreign countries and you, you know, kick down doors and rescue people uh, who are being held in, you know, what you claim is modern day slavery and are being sex trafficked. Um, this model has been controversial for a long time. Uh, the organization that sort of originally kind of conceived of this model of doing things is called the International Justice Mission, and they stopped doing it because it became very controversial uh, for, you know, a number of reasons that we can get into the other thing that OUR says that they do is partner with law enforcement agencies domestically um, to help them carry out, you know, rescues and operations to do with trafficking here at home. Um, again, some of our reporting has revealed that often OUR has uh, overstated their role in some of those operations. They might, for instance, you know, donate money for something like a dog who can sniff out electronics, which is something that is used when you're searching for child exploitation material and then sort of um, release a statement suggesting that they have been very integral in an operation that perhaps they were not actually on. So the, the body of our reporting has found what we have described as a pattern of sort of exaggeration. And um, mm, what to us looks like misrepresentation, OUR has responded really strongly to that. Um, Mr. Ballard was just recently on Jordan Peterson's show and described us as very dishonest, um, not journalists, and says that he nonetheless encourages people to um, read our work so we can all see how ridiculous it is, I think is what he said. Well, at least they're driving traffic, right? I mean, I thought it was a, I thought it was a generous response. Um, tell me the story about the raid in Haiti, because uh, I think that right. that really illustrates the divide between the reality and what, what can be reported and figured out. Right. Right. So the story that OUR tells is that they uh, conducted a raid somewhere on the border of Haiti and the Dominican Republic um, as part of an operation, a series of operations looking for a young Haitian boy named Gardy Marty. Um, Gardy has never been found. OUR has conducted sort of a series of operations looking for him. And in fact, um, they were sort of founded because Mr. Ballard heard the Marty family story and, you know, wanted to, um, wanted to do something to help. So our reporting determined that OUR carried out this raid on the advice of a psychic from Utah named Janet, who, um, I believe her visions, as we were told by people familiar with the operation, told her that there would be many children held on the you know, in this village. So what ended up happening was that OUR representatives went to this village uh, with what is called, a, I think they called it a med cap. So 
mixed in with a kind of legitimate medical team, um, which is a controversial practice for many reasons. And so they start circulating the village with these, uh, with this medical team looking for Gardy, looking for the children. Uh, they don't find any children, but what did happen is that the people living in this village started to get really concerned about what was going on. Uh, Mr. Ballard was, according to people who were there running around with a, with a camera crew, uh, folks started to get very, uh, upset about what was going on here. They started to, uh, a rumor started to spread through the village that maybe there was a virus. Uh, this was obviously pre COVID, but that there was a virus spreading, that they were looking for people with the virus. So, uh, eventually this culminated in, um, folks in the village grabbing shotguns and sort of encouraging OUR rep- representatives to leave. Um, and in the midst of this, actually, according to people who are in a position to know, Mr. Ballard showed up with Janet the psychic. And that was how folks on the mission learned that that was um, yeah, the he didn't, source. He didn't tell anyone that she was coming and then wouldn't, no. was kind of, uh, according to your sources, was also then cagey about who she was and why she was there, right? Right. And obviously in that setting, it was quite noticeable. Yeah. Um, but, you know, OUR has long made a practice of having people come on raids and rescues who are donors. Um, you know, so while they've represented everybody being on the raids as, you know, ex-military, you know, former members of SEAL Team 6, stuff like that, we also know that they've had, for instance, like real estate agents from Utah who are major donors go on these missions. Um, for a while, it was quite fashionable for like actresses uh, in the mid 2000s to go on these missions and then talk about their work, you know, fighting sex trafficking. So um, again, not really in keeping with the sort of like best practices as we understand them for uh, helping victims and survivors of sex trafficking. Yeah. To be clear, I just want to make sure that in your, like in your reporting, you don't deny that sex trafficking exists at all. Right. right of course not. That is not, no, I mean like, yeah, yeah. sorry. This is a real yeah, problem. So, that- yeah, I've I've written about sexual violence repeatedly for a lot of my career. The two things that I cover the most and that Tim and I have written about together uh, quite frequently are sexual violence and conspiracy theories. And so uh, no one is denying that sex trafficking is real. No one is denying that it happens. Um, the criticism frequently levied at groups like OUR is that they tend to overstate the frequency with which uh, sex trafficking is men in vans snatching children off the street. Um, and that a lot of trafficking and sexual abuse happen at home happen um, because the victim has a romantic or familial relationship with their trafficker. Uh, they also tend to not focus a whole lot on things like labor trafficking, which are a huge issue and which other organizations talk about um, a lot. But yeah, nobody is denying that things like sex trafficking are real that they happen, that they are terrible. Like these are, these are real social problems. And there are many NGOs, governmental organizations, private citizens, people trying to work on addressing these issues. Yeah. I just want to make that clear. Cause I think one of the criticisms of your work or, and other people who write about this is that you're denying that it happens at all, which is fundamentally yeah. like not true. No, of course not. Nobody would, nobody would ever deny that. I think that there also tends to be a suggestion uh, that I've heard quite frequently this week that we are pedophiles ourselves, which um, I can't really overstate how disturbing it is yeah. to hear folks like throwing that around so casually. It's uh, not something that used to happen. This is a this is a new, well, sort of new, 
not that new. Uh, this is the thing that happens now, though, is a suggestion that if you question um, whether the narratives of these organizations can be backed up by factual evidence, you get accused of being a pedophile. So that's happened a lot this week. So the thing that's happening this week, <clears throat> actually, I want to tell one more background story before we really mm-hmm. get into the movie. So I think this is another interesting uh part of their mythology and lore uh, that doesn't quite jive with the facts. Who was Liliana? Yeah. Uh, So this was a story that we reported out that was part of our very first story about OUR in December of 2020. Basically, uh, OUR has made much of a survivor who they call Liliana. They have said, quote, that they helped her escape her hell is the phrasing that they used. Um, They have said that she you know, was trafficked when she was 11 or 12. And that, you know, thanks to the help of OUR, she was, you know, as of 2019, living with a loving family and studying for her GED. So uh, when we set out to figure out who this person actually was and whether there was anything that we could, you know, use to like um, substantiate what they were saying, OUR had said that she was that Liliana was getting ready to face her traffickers in federal court. Um, so that's a huge deal. And there are going to be press releases. There are going to be court documents. This is not something that you would not find out about. So we found the person referred to as Liliana and the other women who were trafficked as part of the same organization really quickly. In my memory, it took us like, you know, a day maybe, but we weren't sure at first if this was actually Liliana because the details of the story were so different than what OUR had conveyed and what Mr. Ballard had talked about in, you know, congressional hearings. He told Liliana's story several times, arguing, for instance, that if there had been a wall between the U.S. and Mexico, she wouldn't have been able to be trafficked. Um, This became a huge kind of talking point for him. He conveyed it to President Trump uh, during like a private meeting. Uh, He eventually served on an anti-trafficking board that the Trump administration started. So this was a, the Liliana story was major. So what actually happened, um, according to court records and Liliana's testimony at trial, is that she was trafficked when she was 14 by a man that she believed she was in a romantic relationship with. So she was not 11 or 12. Uh, For some reason, OUR skewed her younger, as though being 14 is not bad enough, right? Right. Um, So what Liliana testified to is that she moved in with this man who was about 17 at the time and his family because she was fleeing sexual abuse at home. So somebody who was already endangered already um, vulnerable, which is something that experts will tell you happens a lot. Um, She moves in with this man. He tells her that they're going to go to the U.S. They're going to get married. They're going to have a good life. Uh, They try to get to the U.S. three times. The first two times they are stopped at the border and turned back into Mexico. Uh, Again, something that OUR and Mr. Ballard didn't mention for whatever reason. The third time she gets across, uh, they get across into Arizona. They go to New York uh, at which point this man who she believes she's in a romantic relationship with locks her in a room, uh, gives her an iPhone and an iPad, tells her to call when she's hungry, and she realizes that the windows are barred. She realizes that she can't escape. So already like a terrible situation. Um, so Liliana was soon told that she and other women who were also being held in the same house were going to be expected to have sex with men for money, which they, of course, were horrified by. Um, so she ends up being sexually trafficked by her, you know, alleged romantic partner and this group of men for three and a half years until she is 17. At which point she says, I am getting out of here. 
She tells the other women that she's calling a cab. She tells her trafficker she's going to visit family. She escapes. She escapes herself. Um, so all the indications that we have is that if she ever, uh, if she met OUR representatives, it would have happened several years later while she was pre- preparing for trial and when she was an adult. They did not meet her when she was 11, 12, 14. They met her years later when she would have been a young adult. So in every way, the kind of story that they conveyed versus who she really is and what actually happened to her is not only like misleading, it downplays her heroism, her ability to get out of her situation. So this was um, this was really striking to us. All right, cyber listeners, Matthew here. We're going to pause for a break. We'll be right back after this. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. We're on with Anna Merlin talking about Operation. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Underground Railroad. Have he, has he never been, has this organization never been called on any of this? Has there ever been somebody tried to you know, like prosecute them for fraud? Are there any kind of legal cases? What's what's the, the state of play there? Right. So when we started reporting on OUR in 2020, there was an investigation that had been opened by the county attorney in Davis County, Utah, a man named Troy Rawlings. And that investigation continued for, uh, I believe, almost three years. Uh, we were told by sources involved in the investigation that it came to encompass also the FBI and the IRS, that they were looking at whether um, OUR might be misleading donors. But ultimately, that investigation was quietly closed in May of this year with no charges filed against anybody. And the folks who we had, who had knowledge of the investigation, who had been willing to talk to us while the investigation was ongoing, are not returning our calls anymore, unsurprisingly. So as far as we know, there are not going to be any charges brought. They are not under suspicion anymore. Like that investigation is over. Um, so that in itself is really interesting. We're seeking more information about that, but it's quite likely that we will never know why that was dropped. Do you have any, do you have any indication why it may have been dropped? I know it's not, I know you don't like to speculate. I think that, and I could look it up, um, the Desert News reporting on it had some kind of statement, I think, from Mr. Rawlings' office that said something like it was decided that it wasn't prudent to pursue charges. It was very, very, very general. It's very vague, which is frustrating. You know, we would really like to understand what happened there. But, you know, um, uh, investigation that doesn't result in criminal charges or grand jury uh, being impaneled or something like that, we're just not going to find out too much about it. So... There's no question that this did some damage to OUR's sort of image with its donors, but, you know, um, ultimately they, they, they made it through. And one of their big donors, correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, Glenn Beck. Is that right? Yeah. So Glenn Beck um, is actually the founder of an organization called the Nazarene Fund that is kind of a sister organization to OUR. It's been listed on their tax filings as being kind of of a subsidiary to OUR. And the Nazarene Fund claims to do what OUR does, but with um, endangered minorities, which, by which they mean Christians, in the Middle East, you know, rescuing um, 
Christians from places in the Middle East. Uh, so again, the Nazarene Fund, um, some of the stories that we have investigated about them, it has been sort of either difficult to confirm or what we've been able to find out has not been sort of exactly the story that the Nazarene Fund conveys. But yeah, Glenn Beck um, is heavily involved with that, along with uh, Mr. Ballard and a man named David Barton, who's often a, um, referred to as a pseudo-historian, who sort of writes um, creative history books about U.S. history that have to do with um, the U.S. Uh, being a, a Christian nation, is the best way to put it. I like the term pseudo-historian. That is that is not my term. That is the that is the term that people have come up with to talk about Mr. Barton. If he doesn't like it, he can take it up with them. Uh, I just think it's uh, when you're looking into a lot of these spaces, oftentimes the people that are um, creating what I might generously call alternative histories mm-hmm. are pretty well read and well versed mm-hmm. in what they're talking about. Um, yeah. And it I makes actually, them difficult to mm-hmm. argue with. Right. Mr. Ballard, actually, I should mention, also writes um, sort of alternative history books that I think tend to suggest that major figures in U.S. history were, were Mormon or, you know, something like that. I'm, I'm not sure. I will confess to not having read those books. I really should. But yeah, I mean, these are folks with a very strong grounding in, in history as they understand it. Um, you brought up the Mormon church. They're also connected mm-hmm. to this. Ballard is himself Mormon, right? Yes. And as we understand it is pretty influential in his, um, believe it's called his ward. So his kind of local church chapter. Yeah. Um, he Mormon listeners will wonder if he is related to M Russell Ballard, who's like an elder in the Mormon church. He's not, uh, they, they do know each other. And I believe, um, elder Ballard has been, you know, uh, supportive of anti-trafficking causes, but they're not related. Why? Okay. So, you y'all have been reporting on this for several years now. Yes. Um, this movie comes out this year. Mm-hmm. You just saw it yesterday, right? I did. Uh, yeah. What's your review? Um, as a movie, it was much better than I expected. Uh, really? Production value wise, acting. Oh yeah, Mr. Caviezel is a good actor. The children in the film are excellent. Uh, you know, you can tell that it was shot on a budget. Um, I believe it most of it was shot in Colombia, but it looks good. Uh, You know, like I was expecting far worse. Um, And so I can understand why people would find it very like affecting, very moving, especially if you're already somebody who cares a lot about the cause of sex trafficking. Um, It's hard to watch. There are many, many, many scenes that involve the suggested, you know, sexual assault of children. I found those, difficult to watch, you know, um, scenes of a man standing over a child undoing his belt. Like those are not things that I particularly wanted to watch. I was, um, grateful when it was over, but no, as a, as a film, uh, I, I see why it's doing well. And I, yeah. Um, angel studios is kind of known for having, I think better production values than, um, maybe other faith, faith based films. They showed a preview for another film that they have coming out about, um, Francesca Cabrini, who was a nun in New York at the turn of the century, who I believe is a saint now. Um, but looked great. I was like, yeah, I would watch that. What is the, the plot of the sound of freedom exactly? Right. So having watched it now, I can say that it seems to be kind of a mashup of two different missions that OUR has talked about going on. So essentially 
Uh, it depicts Mr. Ballard as an HSI agent saving this little boy um, from a sex trafficking ring who sort of kidnapped these children under the guises of um, wanting to audition them to become models. You know, this there's the most affecting scene in the movie is at the beginning, this uh, father in Honduras drops off his children at this modeling agency and, you know, is told to come pick them up at 7 p.m. And by the time he comes back, you know, the building is empty. It's deserted. His children are gone. Like that part is incredibly upsetting. Um, and so basically Mr. Ballard uh, finds the little boy and in going looking for his sister sort of decides that he is going to have to quit his job because he can't do it legally as an HSI agent, as a you know member of the U.S. government. So he solicits the help of um, a rich guy who has played, you know, a trafficker on previous kind of sting operations um, that HSI has done. They end up setting up this um, sort of sting on a private island where they, you know, um, arrest these traffickers and save all these children. But the little girl that he's been looking for is still not among them. So the the culminating action of the movie ends up with um, Tim Ballard going into the jungle alone um, with a group of, um, you know, people who are suggested to be like sort of uh, revolutionaries. Like they're sort of made out to be something like, like FARC or the Zapatistas where they're kind of hiding deep in the jungle um, to rescue this little girl, which spoiler alert, he does find her. And the last scene of the movie is her, him, um, beating this little girl's trafficker to death with his bare hands, which OUR has been very clear did not happen. And uh, I would also say that in our reporting, we have never found any indication that Tim Ballard has ever beaten anybody to death with his bare hands. I don't think he's engaged in hand-to-hand combat in the jungle. I do not think that's a thing. But it is a movie and you've got to have, you have to have the epic moments. The bad guys got to get punished. You know, everyone knows that you're seeing a fantasy version of events, right? But there are definitely, okay, so when they go into the jungle, originally um, Tim Ballard and sort of a sidekick, they are dressed as medical workers and they are there under the guise of um, giving out vaccines. So that sounds like the Haiti Dominican Republic um, operation that we were told about. It also sounds like what the, I believe, CIA did to find Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. Uh, And it, of course, has that operation finding Osama bin Laden created a ton of vaccine hesitancy among Pakistani communities because there started to be this rumor that every time there were medical workers in a village, they were actually, you know, U.S. military, U.S. intelligence. So um, there are reasons why it's not great to do that, um, which is, of course, not really problematized in the film. And then the scenes with the sort of Colombian traffickers, seem to be based on an organization or an operation called Operation Triple Take. That's kind of OUR's like first big operation and is something that they have made quite a lot of. We do know that it happened um, at the time that that operation and arrest took place. It was um, conveyed in the news as being a partnership between the Colombian military and intelligence and um, HSI in the U.S. So OUR is not sort of mentioned in those news accounts, but it's it's possible that they yeah, played a role in it. Can we talk about the movie just a little bit longer? Um, yeah, of course. So this thing, it, it doesn't look terrible. Like a lot of these kinds of uh, faith funded films do. It's right. got an, it's got an actual actor in it. Sure. It has a great opening weekend, but yeah, the reasons why it has a great opening weekend are 
not necessarily there's like a huge groundswell of support to go see the movie, right? Or at least not from the general public. So the thing that's happening with the movie is that Angel Studios has encouraged people to buy multiple tickets. Um, this sort of pay it forward campaign uh, where you are encouraged to not just see the movie, but buy tickets for other people so that other people can get in to see it for free. Um, so people have suggested that this is a way to goose the ticket sales. I don't know. You could also just say that they really want people to be able to see this movie and see it for free. I myself was able to see it for free through this program. Um, so that was great. And I really appreciate it. Was there any, how, how full was your theater? Um, well, I went to see it at 1030 on a Thursday morning, so that's not really fair. There were that's like, fair. Maybe four other people in the theater, but like, you know, people have jobs. That's still not bad. I mean, for like for 1030 on a Thursday morning, four other people in the theater it's not on bad. a Thursday morning in South Portland, Oregon, which is where I am right now. Like, sure. Um, yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, but I mean, by any sort of metric, even if you're having people buy multiple tickets, you know, there's, there's still people going to the, going to the show, going to see it. You know, it's not like every theater is empty. And Ballard is now doing the press rounds based on the success of the film, right? Yes. And um, under an interesting backdrop that we reported yesterday, which is that Mr. Ballard left Operation Underground Railroad before the movie was launched, um, which he has not mentioned and OUR has not mentioned until we contacted them for comment because we heard this from a source and didn't believe it. I thought it made no sense that he would have left the organization prior to the film's launch, this thing that they've been working towards for a long time. So yeah, he's, uh, he's not at OUR anymore. And um, he is nonetheless doing the rounds, promoting the movie. Uh, he appeared on Fox News where he was identified as the co-founder of something called the Spear Fund, which seems to be a new anti-trafficking organization. At one point, their website um, identified the two co-founders as Mr. Ballard and a woman named Jessica Munoz, whose LinkedIn profile says that she's like an emergency a nurse practitioner in Hawaii who I think has also been involved in the anti-trafficking movement. So yeah, I'm real curious what's going on there, but yeah, Mr. Ballard has definitely been making the rounds. I think he did something for PragerU. Uh, he talked to Jordan Peterson. So yeah, he's, uh, he's been um, quite a fixture this week and the last couple of weeks on right wing media. We have no idea why he and OU are separated. We do not. And I would love to know. And if anybody knows anything about it, my email is Anna.Merlin at vice.com. You can contact me to find out my signal. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're available. Um, my editor is Tim.Merchman at vice.com. He also has a, we have a secure phone that we use that's linked to a special signal number. So by all means, just, you know, let us know why this happened. Cause I'm sure it's very normal and we'd love to hear about it. It's I'm sure it's incredibly normal. Whatever happened is very, very normal. <laughs> I mean, I'm starting to see what are the rumors kind of spreading in like the Mormon world about why he left. Um, but I don't know. I have no idea. So I would love to find out about it. And obviously we've contacted Mr. Ballard. Many times we've contacted his PR person, who's also a spokesperson for Angel Studios. Um, we're working on it. We would love to know where the lines are open. So you were just seeing, uh, I think before you sat down, you said you were watching Jordan Peterson talk about the film and interview I Mr. Was, Ballard. Yeah. How, yeah, how was, was that? On, it was actually uh, Mr. Ballard and Jim Caviezel. And I, I just, I, I hadn't gotten around to it, you know, 
um, it, it happened, uh, I think a couple weeks ago. So it was impassioned. Um, there's a lot of stuff about our, you know, personal dishonest journalism and, you know, how disgusting we are, which is, you know, fair and a matter of opinion, certainly. Um, and then, yeah, Mr. Caviezel talking about, about playing Jesus. It's very, it's a very striking interview. Mr. Peterson is wearing a phenomenal suit. There are leather patches on it and it's just it's incredible i don't know where um where he gets them and i'd love to i'd love to know more i'd love to talk to the guy who makes jordan peterson's god has anybody done that story oh that'd be a great get somebody to to, uh interview jordan peterson's taylor i would love to know because he has a very strong um you know stylistic presence anyway yeah sorry so yes it's it's there it's it's there to watch uh it's certainly really interesting i confess i will not um I've I've not made it through the whole thing, but I'm I'm gonna I'm going to. Can you tell me a little bit more about? Um, there's kind of this strain, the strain in your reporting and in, in kind of the story mm-hmm. of Timothy Ballard is that a lot of this feels like it's personality directed. Um, there's a famous shot with the whiteboard. Can you tell me about yeah. the whiteboard? Right. So. I think it's fair to say that OUR's kind of appeal was very much like collected around Tim Ballard and sort of his personal story and his kind of personal like presence, you know, as a person who quit a job due to his conscience as a family man with um, a bunch of children, two of whom he adopted from Haiti uh, after they were rescued in an anti-trafficking operation that OUR participated in. So, you know, like the, his, his sort of, um, personal appeal. Right. And so at one point in our reporting, we were sent a, an image of a whiteboard that, um, Mr. Ballard is said to have drawn during a meeting where it essentially showed a bunch of for-profit and non-profit entities all linked to each other and going back to sort of, I think it was like timballard.com. And there was a phrase written on the whiteboard said, that said, um, the sizzle of the rescue leads them to the covenant. So this sort of idea, I think, being suggested that the allure and attraction of rescuing of these heroic raids and rescues would then lead people to the covenant, which, um, given that Mr. Ballard is a Mormon, I think refers to kind of referring people to to the attractions of Mormon theology. Yeah. Uh, that was how we understood it. Um, we know that Mr. Ballard, I think, has a he has a book called Slave Stealers that I believe is also an LLC. So Slave Stealers was on the whiteboard. Um, yeah, so there's definitely been a a vision for how this is all going to kind of fit together that that the whiteboard kind of laid out. Do you know if they have ever actually is their their claim is something like more than is it three thousand or eight thousand people rescued? People rescued. I have not kept track. I know that it's a large number. Do we have any indication that they have actually rescued anybody? You know, I wouldn't want to say whether or not they have or haven't, because of course some of these operations have been carried out with, you know, entities from the military and the police, for instance, in other countries or, you know, military or police here at home. So it is entirely possible that people were rescued during those missions. It's very hard to say what what rescue means there's a reason why most people who work with um trafficking survivors try not to use that terminology it's infantilizing um it suggests that these people are you know being passed from imprisonment to somebody else's kind of subordinate care but you know it is entirely possible 
that some of these that some of these um, things that are described took place and that they actually involved rescuing people who did not want to be um, working in the sex trade. Uh, there is also, however, and I'd be remiss not to mention this, a bit of a dynamic and faith-based anti-trafficking work where there is not a distinction made between people who engage in voluntary sex work and people who are trafficked, which I think most of us could agree are pretty different things. So one of the most interesting interviews I did was with a group of um, an advocacy group and sort of union for sex workers in Thailand. And so these women had not heard of OUR specifically, which is kind of striking because OUR claims to work in, I believe, every province in Thailand. But they said, you know, we have a lot of these groups and they're all Western. They're from the U.S., Australia and England. They're generally, you know, men claiming some kind of ex-military background and they come in and say that they're saving sex workers. And sometimes what that has involved in Thailand specifically is busting down the doors of brothels where people are working voluntarily and proclaiming that they're being rescued. And in some cases, frankly, that has led to folks being arrested and put into police custody. There is simply no other way to put it. So um, this model is not limited to OUR, and it is a lot more complicated than just opening the doors and letting people out of a cell. You know, I mean, Mr. Ballard at one point um, during a fundraiser talked about uh, people literally being liberated from a cage and held up like a padlock that he said was on the cage and said that their director of aftercare had been wrestling physically with a trafficker for control of the padlock because he wanted to lock these women back up, um, which is a very uh, cinematic description. Can you also tell me there's one of the, another one of the criticisms of their work is that they may actually be creating the demand Right. So um, we have talked to a lot of experts in sort of like survivor recovery, best practices in the trafficking field. Um, we've also talked to people who are ex-military, you know, ex-intelligence who went on OUR missions. And one of the reasons why people who were ex-military didn't tend to stay involved in OUR rescues is that they were disturbed by a sort of lack of intelligence and lack of kind of planning that went into these operations. So the example that was used for us is that, sorry, there is now, of course, a blue jay just squawking so loudly. I hope everyone can hear that. They're, um, they're assholes, blue jays. They're such assholes. I went out here so the dog wouldn't bark and instead I'm getting, you know, bombarded by nature's kingdom who are surely working for sex traffickers themselves. Anyway, sorry. Um, so, yeah, ex-military people working with OUR said that, for instance, OUR would not do any sort of like meaningful surveillance or identification of targets. They wouldn't know where a hospital was if they were carrying out a raid, which is considered really important. Um, and instead, what people have described is taking OUR operators and donors like real estate agents to places like sex clubs or, you know, bars overseas and asking for underage girls. And, you know, if somebody said, well, I can bring you a 15-year-old saying, no, I want younger than that. I want younger um, and offering more and more money. And again, OUR is not alone in being accused of doing this. The issue there is that it doesn't necessarily identify people who are actually traffickers and people who are actually trafficking victims. The concern is what it does is it incentivizes people to find to find people who to find children, to find teenagers who might be willing to do this and encourages people who have not previously trafficked children to consider doing so because there's a lot of money on the table. 
So that's what we mean when experts say creating demand. And the concern is that it doesn't actually bust up existing trafficking rings and it sort of muddies um, what may or may not actually be going on in those places. Correct me if I'm wrong. There was also, was this part of the criminal investigation that there were suggestions that maybe some of the members were also directly soliciting uh, sexual favors from, or what's going on here exactly? So what I can say about that is that a letter was circulating in kind of um, law enforcement and anti-trafficking, I think actually mostly anti-trafficking circles in Utah. And this letter was anonymous. It purported to be from pe- people who had previously worked at OUR. I think specifically it said that it was a group of women who'd worked at OUR. And they were suggesting that there had been some sexual misconduct on missions. Um, again, because the investigation was closed and because we have never successfully identified who wrote that letter, I don't know how much of that is true. That is one of those accusations that I'm very, very, very careful about talking about because it came from an anonymous letter. Uh, you know, one thing that we do know, however, and we know this for a fact, is that um, we spoke to a young man who was recruited to go on an OUR mission. And ultimately, after going through the recruitment and training training process, he decided not to go because he felt that he had not been given adequate training. Um, you know, there was a lot of, uh, it was in a hotel ballroom. There was some stuff like uh, you watch a video where a guy in a gorilla suit walks by and then you're asked if you notice the guy in the gorilla suit. It's like a, you know, operation or training and like, you know, seeing if you're observant, whatever. Um, So one thing that did come up in that training that this young man told us about was a sort of discussion about what to do if you feel sexually tempted by the people that you're trying to save. And this was sort of presented as like maybe a very normal thing that a lot of people would go through and that this sort of, um, this was an issue that would come up, which, um, it's a big yikes. We were surprised here. Uh, it's a bit of a yikes. There was also some discussions about like, you know, a lot of the people going on these missions are devout Mormons. They might be in bars. So, you know, should they feel okay about drinking alcohol? Should they feel okay about, you know, having a woman sitting on their lap? So there was, um, a lot of, uh, very candid discussions. This, the, it's really, fascinating this organization and like Ballard's separation from it. I want to zoom out real quick, kind of here at the end of our conversation and ask like a bigger question. It's like you're immersed in the conspiratorial realm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this stuff back to front. I'd say like one of the major themes over the past decade has been, and and I guess it's kind of a feature of this stuff in general, uh, this worry over children and what is happening to children Why does, you know, it was part of Comet Pizza. It's been part of so many conspiracy theories of late. Why is that like a recurring theme? Right. So the safety and welfare of children comes up a lot. Obviously, the satanic panic, it was huge. Even prior to that, there were sort of like mm, occult sex panics in the 70s and 80s where this arose. Um, And of course, it really dates back to the blood libel in the Middle Ages. You know, this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that Christian children were being kidnapped and murdered by Jews in sort of ritualistic settings to use their blood, right? Um, It's incredibly common. It recurs over and over and over, I think, for a number of reasons. One is that a lot of modern conspiracy theories are kind of reworking elements of the blood libel or the protocols of the elders of Zion because these, you know, well-founded anti-Semitic conspiracy theories um, just work 
for getting people involved, you know, uh, no matter how many times they're debunked and chosen to be false, shown to be false, they're just, they just come back over and over. The other thing I think is that, um, the safety and welfare of children is so important to people that child abuse is the worst thing that most of us can imagine. And so if you hold out your political or social opponents or some mysterious other to be sexual abusers of children, there's sort of nothing that isn't justified. You know, this has come up a lot in QAnon. It came up a lot in Pizzagate. This sort of idea that um, the people that you oppose politically, for example, high level democratic operatives, well, you know, not they're not just bad. They're not just doing the wrong thing for the country. They're, you know, accused of they're monsters. Um, yeah. Accused of doing monstrous things, accused of killing babies, accused of drinking blood. And I think it's um conspiracy theories are often just a more heightened level of kind of normal political discourse. So in this case, kind of demonizing your political opponents, but it gets people's emotions involved. It gets people frightened, polarized, angry. And, you know, we've been seeing a lot of this this week in the discussion around the film. Again, like anything is considered to be justified if um, if children are being hurt. You know, I think that's the kind of grim note I like to strike uh, as an outro. Sorry, no, no, it's great. Um, yeah, I like down endings. Anna sure. Merlin, thank you so much for coming onto the show and walking Thanks us through this. Didn't mean me. to cut you off. Sorry. Oh no, I really appreciate it. And as always, I love to end on a downer. There's so many, so many like shows that have asked me on, and then I can just like see them regretting it at the end just being like oh they'll be like well do you have a solution i'll be like no i don't no that's the simply don't you know kind of to a little bit of what we were talking about on the stream and off the podcast like the more i learn about conspiracy theory and this stuff and especially like how it's interwoven into american culture like this is just what we live with yeah this is just where we're at so yeah uh, have a great weekend everybody Uh, if you'd like to have another great weekend, come and watch uh, watch us record Cyber Live on Twitch every Friday around 11 a.m. We go live. It's at twitch.tv, 11 a.m. Eastern, I should say. It's at twitch.tv forward slash vice. Thank you all for tuning in. We will be back again next week uh, with another story about horrifying things going on on the Internet. I think we're going to talk about some labor issues, uh, some actor strikes, some writer strikes, I believe, is the plan. And I'm excited for that. Anna, thank you so much again for coming onto the show. Thank you so much. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.